teaching for this evening comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. This is God's Word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to uh, continue tonight in our series and looking at the book of Galatians. And if uh, you can find the, the passage there in your worship folder, and if you have a Bible and want to turn in your Bible, we'll be looking at Galatians uh, chapter 4. Um, and as we turn back to this letter, just as a, as a reminder, uh, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, to a group of churches in uh, Galatia, which is now a southern part, of, I think, modern-day Turkey, generally speaking, around AD 50. And there are a group of churches that were in crisis. And as our passage for tonight uh, described uh, in verses 12 to 16, Paul had previously spent time there uh, but it, he, during one of his missionary journeys. But it was actually only because he became ill that he ended up stopping and having to recover. And while he was there, uh, he talked to these, these folks about Jesus, and they received him with great care, even at great expense to themselves. And so Paul, when he writes this letter, uh, his memory of time spent with these new believers was time that was especially sweet and precious and life-changing both for him and for them. And so when he comes to write this letter and discovers what's going on, that now his gospel is under attack, that according to some, Paul's gospel was fine as far as it went, but it wasn't enough. The Galatians, they were being persuaded by some false teachers that they also needed to adhere to the whole Old Testament, the Torah, as it was referred to by the Jewish people. And in particular, they were being told that they needed to 
follow specific kinds of practices that embodied what it meant to be a person of God or the people of God. That faith in Jesus was not enough. They also needed to be circumcised. That they needed to follow all these various food laws and they needed to observe special days and seasons and years as laid out in the Old Testament. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, Paul moves away from laying out an argument for the gospel. And instead, he transitions here to speak directly to the spiritual situation of his readers. And so after explaining how the whole Bible points to Jesus in the bulk of chapter 3, and then laying out for the churches in Galatia what it means to be a Christian laying out their, their new identity and all of their privileges that they now have and enjoy as children of God, as sons and daughters of God, he turns now to address the underlying problem that they're facing. And if I could summarize, what is the, the simplest way to understand the problem of this church or these churches I think we could summarize it like this, that the fundamental problem they're facing, it's not the false teachers, it's not these other gospels, though those are significant and they are pressing in on them and making it more difficult, but the fundamental problem is the struggle to believe that Jesus is enough for you. That's why Paul had to write this letter, is that they were struggling to believe that Jesus Christ was sufficient for them. And that coupled with the false teachers and their claims that faith in Jesus is fine as far as it goes, but you can't really know God fully. You can't really experience all that God has promised unless you become fully Jewish. Joined up with that struggle to believe That in Jesus Christ, God has given you all that you need. Bubbles over into a struggle to believe that good news. And so therefore, this passage is somewhat different than we were looking at in previous weeks. Where Paul is arguing very closely from a variety of passages in, in the Old Testament to lay out for us the good news about Jesus. Here he turns directly to their situation. And it provides a window, therefore, for us, into what does gospel ministry look like? What does gospel ministry look like? What does it mean for us to be a church who holds to this good news about Jesus? What kind of impact should it, should it have on you and, and on me? And so all I want to do tonight is I would like to just make two points from this passage. The first point I want to make is we're going to look at what is the diagnosis that the gospel makes on us, the diagnosis of gospel ministry. And then second, what is the remedy for the problem that diagnosis uncovers? What is the remedy of gospel ministry? So the diagnosis and the remedy. So first, let's look at the, the diagnosis here. If you look here in verse 8 and 9, Paul, here he begins with a pretty, he begins with a penetrating question. He says, formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, what's he, what's he talking about? The basic question he's saying is, look, you used to be enslaved to idols. As Gentiles, they would have been uh, enmeshed in pagan religion, uh, a pantheon of gods that you would appease and endeavor to please in any number of ways in order to get whatever it is that you felt like you needed, whether it was food or whether it was uh, financial resources or whether it was children or whether it was a spouse or whatever. That the, these, they were, before coming to know Jesus, they were enslaved to these gods. But then he goes on and he says, but see, you've come to know the true and living God now. So how can you go back on that? How can you now go back to a life of spiritual slavery, to what you were once enslaved to before? Now, what's important for us to remind ourselves of is to try to understand what Paul was referring to here when he says to them, how can you turn back given who you now are? So put, to put it one way, is Paul referring to that they would actually turn back to worshiping the pagan gods that they used to worship? Or does he have something else in mind? I actually think he has something else in mind that makes a gospel diagnosis so penetrating. So in order to see that, we need to remember that the basic overarching point of Galatians for Paul is that he's warning the Galatians not to adopt what we might call a biblical legalism, a life characterized by works of the law. That's a phrase that he uses several times in this letter as a means of gaining acceptance or worthiness with God. That Paul is trying to tell these Christians, do not think that in order for you to find life, to enjoy God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and promises, that you can somehow add to what Jesus has done by living a better life. Don't buy that. Don't do that. That is not the gospel. Paul says earlier, that's a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. There's no good news in that. And so, therefore, if we're to, to feel the force of what Paul is saying to us here, we need to see that he's drawing a parallel between those false gods in verse 8 that they were once enslaved to, and then the religious observance and practices that the false teachers we're putting on these Christians, these believers. When he then goes on to say in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now here's what he's doing. Paul is drawing a parallel here between gods that are really no gods at all, 
and calls that idolatry. He's drawing a parallel between that and the, the Jews who are in these churches saying, if you really want to be close to God, you need to become circumcised. Paul's calling that idolatry, which is a pretty bold thing for him to say. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that biblical religion, biblical morality, divorced from the gospel, is idolatry, according to Paul. It's a pretty penetrating diagnosis that he's making. Paul is saying that if you follow the teaching of the false teachers, you will be just as lost and as enslaved as you were in your former life of pagan idol worship. And, and why is that? Why does Paul draw that parallel? If you notice, he, he, he uses this phrase that he used earlier in chapter 4 and we looked at a couple weeks ago, the elementary principles of the world or the basic principles of the world. Well, what does he have in mind? Uh, the simplest way I know to say it is that the most basic principle of the world is that you must save yourself. And Paul is helping us to see that whether it be a pagan version of saving yourself, an irreligious version of it, or a religious version of saving yourself, both of them are idolatry. Now what's particularly important and fascinating about that is he's saying that if anything but Jesus becomes a requirement for being happy or worthy, you will become enslaved to it. Think about that in your life. What, if you're honest, what do you require to be happy? What do you long for to know that you matter, that you are worthy, that you are acceptable, that you're justified? If it's anything other than Jesus, you will become enslaved to that thing. It will own you. And Paul is helping us to see that those things that you can become enslaved to can actually be very religious, very moral. It could be your desire to serve other people. It could be reading the Bible. It could be going to church. It could be giving your money away. It could be loving your spouse. It could be loving your children. It could be loving your neighbor. Any of those things can become an idol in your life. That's what Paul's telling us. That if those things become so powerful in your life that without them you cannot know who you really are, that you are accepted and worthy and delighted in before God in Christ, they, they're an idol in your life. So take, just as an example, take marriage. I mean, there are a gazillion examples we could use, so just try this one. Let's say marriage in your life is something that is just, it's absolutely necessary for your happiness. If that's the case, you will become enslaved and controlled by it. And think of it like this. If marriage is necessary for your happiness, to know that you're somebody, if you don't get married or your marriage struggles, 
or perhaps it even falls apart, you will be devastated. You will lose a sense of self. You will lose an identity. But if you do get married, let's say, or you are married, and marriage is necessary for your happiness, you will likely choke it to death out of fear and anxiety of losing what you must have to know that you are acceptable and worthy. See, if marriage is what you require to be happy, if it's the thing that you have to have in order to know that you are somebody, you will be devastated if you don't get married or marriage is hard or it doesn't work well. And if you are married and marriage is what you have to have to know you're okay, you will likely choke it because you'll be so afraid of losing it. That's how idolatry works in our lives. That's how we become enslaved to them. You see, in both cases, whether you are or you aren't married, it has become your righteousness, your worthiness, your identity, your acceptability. It means that you're somebody. But as we move from the diagnosis to the remedy, let's, let's pause for a minute and ask the question, why, though, were the Galatians drawn by the appeals of the false teachers to practice and become Jewish, to take on the Old Testament laws and to practice a life and follow God in that way? Why were they drawn into that? The answer is that they were insecure about their acceptance with God. And the same is true for us. You see, all attempts to prove our worthiness or acceptability stem from deep-seated insecurity. The knowledge that we are not right and that we desperately need validation. That's where insecurity comes from. So then what's the remedy? What... How does gospel ministry help us to root out this problem of insecurity? How does it wean us off of false gods, misplaced trust, and even very good things, but can't bear the weight of your trust? Think for a moment about the people in your life that you feel the most comfortable with, the most secure with. See, ironically, what I think about when you think about those people, two things are always true. The people we feel the most secure with are the people who know us the best. And by knowing you the best means they know the worst about you. And they haven't run away. See, if you have someone in your life like that, you're secure, you're safe. And it's not because you're great. It's actually despite what you're like that you know you're secure. They might love things about you and they appreciate that. But your security comes from them knowing all the reasons why they should turn and run the other way. Now, let's apply that for a minute when we think about how the gospel works You see, the remedy to our insecurity is not our righteousness, but a relationship. That's why I asked you to think about people in your life you're most secure with. 
See, being loved and accepted, not because of who you are, but despite who you are. And here, notice in verse 9, Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Now, he uses this word to know here a couple times. And in the Bible, to be to know someone in the Bible is a word that really is meant to describe the deepest, most intimate, most vulnerable, the most transparent relationships. Therefore, when he says to know God or that you're known by God, he's not talking about just an intellectual understanding or a cursory understanding. He's talking about knowing you from the inside out and you coming to know God, not as an abstract idea, but as a personal God, even a father to you. And he writes, he says, you've come to know God. And then he says this interesting thing in verse 9, again, or rather to be known by God. Why does he do that? He starts out, you've, you've come to know him, or rather, actually, what's happened is you are now known by God. Why does he include both of those? Um, I think the main reason he does that is he's actually trying to tell us which is most important. When he says there, rather to be known by God, Paul is helping us to see that it's God's knowing of us in Christ that is most important. And why is that? Why does he need to tell us that? The reason is because our knowing of God is utterly fickle. Our knowing of God fluctuates like the weather, depending on what's going on in our lives. As much as we wish that may not be the case, the reality is when things don't go well, whether we realize it or not, if we stopped and thought about it or were asked a question about it, eventually we would get to the, to the realization, I'm just not sure God is for me. How do I know God is good? Or let's say you see sin in your life. Or bad things happen to people in your life that you love and you may begin to wonder, okay, I thought I knew God, but I don't know anymore. Paul is saying, that's not the only knowing that's going on. To be a Christian means you are known by God. As one writer put it, it's not so much your regard and love for God, but God's love and regard for you that makes you a Christian. Let me read that again. It's not so much your regard and love for God, but God's love and regard for you that makes you a Christian. Therefore, the gospel reminds us that we don't have to make ourselves beautiful or worthy to God. Think about that. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what he's telling the Galatians. He says, don't you see, there is a righteousness apart from the law. There is a righteousness that is a person and you're connected to through faith. And it's freely given to you. You no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to live a life of insecurity, of wondering, of pining after who knows what to prove that you're somebody. Because in the gospel, you are declared worthy. 
you are now regarded in God's eyes as beloved, as worthy, as acceptable, as cherished, as delighted in. You cannot add to that, nor can you take away from that. You see, what we are told here in the gospel is that you don't need to pursue false gods anymore. You don't need to do that. No matter what you think or how you feel in order to build your self-image or to prove your worthiness. Because Paul says, he's telling us here that to be known by God means that in Jesus, God showed you his love for you while you were still a sinner. Christ died for you. It's not that God doesn't know who you really are. In fact, it's precisely because he does know who you are. Even the things that the people closest to you don't know about. God is so committed to sinners that he doesn't just sit with you, he actually comes to you and he takes all of your shame and your guilt upon himself. You are secure. This is the end of your insecurity. That's what the good news promises to us. You can live a life of joy and freedom knowing that you are accepted in Jesus. So let me ask you, can you relate to these Galatians at all? Can you, can you see the tendency in your own life to disbelieve that Jesus is sufficient for you? Do you find yourself wondering, if only these certain things in my life were different, then my life would be great. I actually found myself in a conversation with a friend a little while ago and saying, you know what? I actually think if I could straighten out this dimension in my life, it would be heaven on earth. And I almost gasped for air. It's like, well, okay, I just identified a very big idol in my life. <laughs> because that, that, was, that is the thing that I most long for and most dependent on. Can you relate to these Galatians? Where do you, if so, where do you go from here? Well, let me suggest briefly as we close. Listen carefully to the, for the pockets of insecurity in your life. Even, perhaps even think about this. Is there someone in your life you could ask, hey, where do you think, where do you see insecurity in my life? And help them, ask them to help you to identify it. See if you can listen for it. And then ask the question, how might they reveal what you believe you must have to be happy or worthy? And then lastly, work on those insecurities and the idols in your life by reflecting on how God regards and loves you in in Christ. Remember, to be a Christian is far more about God knowing you, how he regards and loves you, than how well you know him. Yes, do you need to know that He is the the God of the universe, that Jesus is the Son of God raised from the dead and that you need him. Yes, absolutely. But it's your knowledge of him is not what brings you security. It's resting in his knowledge of you and Jesus. Let's pray together. We ask that you would be present with us as we continue to linger over these verses and what God has done for us. 
We pray that as we continue to navigate our way through this book and reflect on what is the gospel and why do we need it, we ask that you would continue to diagnose our own hearts and peel back the layers of our insecurity. And we pray that you would minister to us, that you would serve and feed us with good news, that in Jesus we are secure, that in him, despite what we're like, you welcome us home, you cover us with grace and forgiveness and mercy and call us your children. So, Father, would you help us to lay hold of that good news? And we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to work it into our daily lives. Not because we muster up that that work or that effort, but because we belong to you. That we are in Jesus and he is in us. And therefore, we have all we need in him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.